and then your mindset changes rather than time being the issue of what, you know, this is going to be an inconvenience as to how are my family going to survive if I don't survive. I think that was my initial thought. I had no fear of dying whatsoever. That never entered my mind. I was perfectly ready to go. But what concerned me most of all was leaving my family behind. How prepared they were for, for their life ahead in various aspects, but particularly spiritually. Because as I said, I hadn't spent enough time with them growing up and in their kind of teens into their twenties is quite a pivotal time when they kind of change from boys to men. Yeah, that, that, that concerned me more than anything else. Just what it, how it was going to affect them. Welcome to Testimony, an encouraging look at how God works in people's lives. Well, I'm very pleased to be joined by Gordon McCracken this morning, able to be sat with you and to hear some of your testimony. How are you doing today? Very well, thank you, Dan. Yes, doing fine. Well, my first question is always, what was your home life like and what influence did Christianity play? Home life was great. Uh, I was an only child, brought up in a Christian home. And when I say Christian, I mean that both my parents were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ as their saviour. They had both been brought up in a Christian home as well. As an only child, I was completely spoiled. When we went on holidays, it would be my parents and both sets of grandparents that went holiday together. And here was me, only child and only grandchild. Well, there were other grandchildren, but they, they were abroad in Canada. So I was completely spoiled and to be brought up in a Christian home, didn't realise it at the time, but obviously looking back was a great privilege, a great honour. And so the love that I experienced was both family love and Christian love was phenomenal and a tremendous, tremendous privilege. So a, a great, great upbringing. So you're obviously familiar with the gospel, with the Lord Jesus, with the work of Calvary, but at what point did you make it your own personal faith? Well, I was always very conscious that I wasn't a Christian because my parents were a Christian and I had my own decision to make as to what I believed. I can never really remember a time in my life when I didn't believe that God existed. I didn't really always see the necessity for me to make a personal decision or to respond to what God had done. I just kind of heard it as stories, if you like, um, Sunday school stories and enjoyed all that kind of thing. Um, but it was actually one day I was visiting my great grandmother, who was also a believer. She became a Christian actually when she was about 19 years of age. She'd just got married and had a, a child and she heard the gospel and she got saved. Now the man she was married to, my great-grandfather, he didn't become a Christian until he was 85. Oh. So she ministered to him her whole life, read the Bible to him every day, but he didn't trust the Lord until he was 85 and he died at 86. 
So, um, I mean, I, I, I knew them. The great-grandfather passed away when I was five. But anyway, each Sunday, we'd go to my great-grandmother's house. And there, I remember, sitting at her living room window, looking out over Glasgow, because it looked out over the city. It was quite a high position for where the home was. And it was a gorgeous, gorgeous day. And you could see the hills in the distance. And I have in my memory that it was kind of blossom out. So I don't know, maybe it was kind of May time, something like that. And it was just gorgeous. And I remember my heart almost swelling up inside me. It is the wonder of it all. And the thought running through my mind, this must be God. God is awesome. And I want to know God. And while I'd heard the gospel many, many times before, I didn't just like get down on my knees there and ask God to save me. Or, but I made sure that night when we went to hear the gospel being preached, I paid particular attention because I wanted to know, although I knew how to get saved, I just wanted to get it right in my head. And so I was about nine years of age, I heard the preacher, couldn't tell you what he said now, but I knew I was convicted of my sin as well, and not just the awesomeness of God, but convicted of my sin, and realised that I needed a saviour. So I spoke to my parents afterwards, who read the scriptures to me, and basically said it's between you and God. I can't put words in your mouth, I can't say this or do this. You've got to speak to God and tell him what's on your heart. And so I, I did. I just just prayed and asked the Lord to forgive me, to give me his eternal life. I remember getting a conscious feeling and desire to read the Bible. Like I mean, I was only nine years of age, but I took the Bible with me to school every day and read it at lunchtime. And I wanted to hear more and wanted to pray and just love being with Christians and and that that was like given to me when I get saved you know it was just this feeling of wanting to soak in as much of the Lord and the Lord's things as I possibly could and that was even just a, you know as a child at nine years of age. How did you go on through education and, and into early employment? Well I left school and I didn't go to university could have gone to university, but the thought of studying for the next four years just filled me with horror. I got a job working in a bank, and my dad worked in a bank as well, so it was kind of something I knew about growing up. And But to me it was just a job, it wasn't a career, it was just like nine to five, get money, and that's, that's all it was. Yeah, it certainly didn't fulfill me in any way, shape or form uh, as a job. I used as much as my, my spare time as I possibly could in the things of the Lord to go to meetings, to evangelise if there was a, a preacher somewhere. I would try and go and, and help give out tracts or, or whatever I could. And that, I was going to say, appealed to me more, but it certainly fulfilled me more than um, yeah dealing with people's direct debits and whatever <laughs> else. So did you always have that passion to evangelise? Um, yeah, I think my parents would take me along to missionary meetings. There was a thing that used to be called the half yearlies and yeah, it was when missionaries would come back on furlough and they would give reports of what they'd been involved in and these meetings to me just were so exciting and just thrilled me hearing about what God was doing, not only abroad but in our country and I guess yes, it just it just thrilled me and I thought, well, I'd, I'd love to be involved in that work. I'd love to see God's hand literally moving in people's lives. And that would be wonderful. So, and we, we would have 
um, preachers come and stay at the house and missionaries come and stay at the house. I remember as a young lad, it was the Falklands War and we had Jim and Betty Burnett from Argentina staying in our house. And I heard this couple were coming from Argentina. I thought, are we not at war with Argentina? <laughs> and uh, yeah, I slept with a toy gun under my pillow. <laughs> Just in case. Just in case. And they've never let me forget it. But yeah, I had a lot of influence in my life growing up and in my early uh, sort of work years as well of knowing missionaries and knowing evangelists. It just thrilled my soul to hear the tales that they would tell about how God moved in the lives of people and transferred families and transformed towns. and It was just tremendous, yeah. Your call to full-time work, was that after the kids had come along? Um, no, I, I believe it kind of started even before I was married. Yeah. Okay. Because as I say, God had put in my heart this appeal to missionary work and I, I always felt that that would be something that I'd be involved in. Didn't know where, didn't know when, didn't know how, but I, I just felt that God was moving me in a particular direction towards evangelism. And as a young man, I think it was maybe about I can't remember what time I started to get involved in children's work, you know, I was starting to take Sunday school classes and things like that, but it was probably in my sort of teens, 18, 19 maybe. And then in my early, so 19, age 20, we had a, a offering taken in our gospel hall for a missionary called Peter Headley from your part of the, the world, yeah. who was serving the Lord in Italy, but going into Albania. And it wasn't long after Albania had opened up from communism and the gospel was going in and people were being saved. And uh, so I spoke to Peter and asked if there was anybody that I could like help in some way. I had no idea, very naive. And he told me about a lady called Mariana Nyhoff who was starting an orphanage in Girocaster in Albania. And at that point, I thought, okay, well, we'll, we'll try and help. And I spoke to my dad and we agreed that we would take two weeks off our work and we'd organise an aid convoy to take whatever this lady needed to set up our orphanage in Albania. And I think we had about five weeks before we were had our holidays to go. So in that five weeks, we, we filled a, a truck, a car with the biggest trailer you can tow in the back and an ambulance was donated by the Scottish Ambulance Service, which was all so full of blankets, cots, we got about 90 cots donated and it was just phenomenal. And that was my first kind of taste foray into, I suppose, missionary work, certainly abroad. And that gave me a big interest in Albania. And I thought, well, the Lord's going to call me to Albania. It surely is. And every year I would use my holidays and go back and forth to Albania and worked with um, Cecil Gaw and Wesley Ferguson from Northern Ireland, who ran the Albanian Christian Fund and went around the assemblies in Albania and it was great because literally people were getting saved at every meeting and there were dozens of people getting baptised every week and it was thrilling and it was like being back in the book of the Acts, it was phenomenal. And as much as I would have loved to have gone to Albania as a missionary, never felt the Lord saying go, which frustrated me greatly. But it gave me an interest in evangelism and preaching and I suppose I started to exercise that more at home as well, in my home assembly. And other people then started asking me to take meetings and different things. And in my mid-twenties, I guess, was when I was first asked to go and visit a school. And that was when things really started to change for me. Did you ever 
have a definitive moment where you felt you heard the Lord call or was it more of a process? I think it was more of a process. It was like being taken down a series of one-way streets that led onto another one-way street and, and there was no kind of going back. It was like you were getting taken down this tunnel that eventually would lead to an outcome. And it, yeah, it was, a, it was a process of being guided and influenced, I suppose, by different experiences and different people and open doors, opportunities and recognising, I suppose, not just me recognising, but others recognising certain gifts in me that God had given and speaking to me and saying that. I mean, people would speak to me and say, in the course of one particular week, I remember there was about two or three different people from my assembly and from other assemblies came to me and said, do you not think the Lord is calling me to do this? Or have you ever thought of doing this full time or something of that nature? And they actually approached me and said that to me. And that wasn't putting thoughts in my mind. Obviously, I'd already thought of these things. But it was starting to confirm to me that maybe I'm not just thinking all this myself. And, um, and opportunities were opening up, as I say, into the schools, uh, which I'd never initially thought of. Um, I did enjoy, enjoy children's work, doing the, the Sunday school and that kind of thing, but then it just kind of almost um, snowballed very in a very short space of time from going for just like doing Sunday school and one or two school visits to masses of opportunities coming on board. Yeah. So at what point did the secular work fall by the wayside? Well, my work work were quite good in allowing me to do various things while still working so I could take school assemblies and that kind of thing, which was good. I knew something had to give because every waking hour was being spent preparing for various things, for gospel campaigns, for Bible teaching, for school visits. And I had absolutely no time, zero time whatsoever. And this time I was married and had a child and obviously I wasn't spending as much time with my wife or my children as I should have been and it, it was getting to the stage that something was going to have to, to give. But the, the big, I mean I, I was 100% convinced by this stage that the Lord was calling me to serve him full time in evangelism, particularly towards young people but in evangelism generally. And the big issue in our home was that my wife did not feel that. She did not feel called. She did not see herself as a preacher's wife and saw these preacher's wives and thought to themselves, well, she put them on a pedestal and she thought, oh, that's, that's not me. And this was a, a source of, not conflict, but it was just, it was difficult because I was very frustrated thinking, you know, we need to, push ahead with this, need to set the ball rolling and I couldn't because we both needed to be convinced of this because it was going to affect our marriage and our family going forward. That's the kind of stage we were at for quite some time. So what was the resolution to that? The resolution to that was, I kind of put it to the back of my mind, I stopped thinking about it almost, just left it with the Lord. You know, if this is going to happen, you're going to have to make it happen because I'm, I'm not going to, 
I can't push it. No point in me trying to manipulate things. And the more I spoke to my wife about it, the the more she kind of put down the barriers and didn't want to speak about it. And so it, it was difficult. And then out of the blue, like completely out of the blue, and I'll explain why it was obviously of the Lord, the timing of it. But completely out of the blue, I came home from work one day and on the dining room table, that exact dining room table that's sitting there, my wife's uh, Bible was open and the choice cleanings that she did uh, every day. thought it was a bit unusual because she'd normally kind of put it away. And she said, I want to speak to you. So we sat down and where she'd been reading that day was in Ruth. And she said, I've, I finally got a piece about what the Lord wants us to do. And she began to read from Ruth. And she said, I will go where you will go. And your God will be my God and I will serve where you will serve. And she says, Lord's not calling me to be a preacher. He's calling me to be your wife and the mother of our children. Wherever and however God will use you in whatever capacity. And I have this peace that I will just serve where you serve and go where you serve. So I think you need to speak to the, the overseers about your desire to go full time in the Lord's work. And it was like, whoa, where did that come from? Because it was, it, to me, it was just completely out of the blue. It had gone from like, no, never, this is crazy, to, yeah, I think you should do this. So that night was actually our midweek ministry meeting. So Alison was at home with, with Ethan, and I went out. It was Stephen Arbuthnet who was preaching, and he spoke on, I've never heard it spoken on before or since, and he spoke on, those who preach the gospel can live off the gospel. And he explained how it was right and appropriate that those who preach the gospel should be supported to be able to do that. And I've never heard that preached on before or since. And I came home and told Alison she couldn't believe it. And I thought, okay, well, we need to kind of make arrangements to speak to the, to the overseers. I can't remember if I did it that time or left it to after the weekend, but at the weekend we went to a conference and it was co-winning conference. I can't remember exactly who all the speakers were. I think maybe Malcolm Radcliffe was there, but John Grant was preaching. Now, just to set the scene, prior to this, I had spoken to my parents like six months or whatever before this actually happened to say that these thoughts were on my mind, that I felt the Lord was calling me to full-time work, but just don't know when it's going to happen or where it's going to happen, just pray about it. Now, they were quite sceptical about this and tried to kind of just... They um, heard you. Calm me, <laughs> just kind of calm me down and say, well, you know, you have to be very sure, as parents would, you know, just being very wise and take it canny, be cautious and whatever. So they were also at the conference and they were sitting down the front and John got up to preach and he's only told me this afterwards that as he was on his way up to the platform, he changed what he was going to preach on. And he preached on the call of Isaiah. And you might, he, he might as well have used our names in his message because it was all about us, all about our family and all about what was on our minds. That you don't have to go to another country to serve the Lord. You can serve the Lord right where you are. You can be a, a, a family man and a father and serve the Lord. Um, Isaiah was married. He had two children. Well, I was married and had a child and had another one on the way. And it, it, his entire message, I mean, I've, left, I've still got it on tape, 
the good old fashioned <laughs> cassette tape. Might actually explain what a tape is to some of the younger <laughs> listeners. And uh, it, it was phenomenal. So much so that when he, he sat back down, it was the interval, I think. I don't think it was the end of the conference, I think it was the interval. He sat back down, and I remember my parents being halfway down the hall, it was like a school hall, and uh, they turning around and looking back, we were sat at the back with, with children, and tears streaming down my mum's face, because even they knew that that message was exactly for us. I spoke to John about it, not, not at the conference there and then, because I didn't want to preempt things and tell him what was on my mind, but I think it was at our commendation meeting afterwards, and he told me that he left that conference that day miserable. And he actually said to his wife that he believed nothing was done for God that day. Uh, he should never have changed his message halfway up to the platform. It was just pointless. And uh, yeah, he said God taught him a lesson <laughs> yeah. after that. Yeah. Didn't realise the seed that would be in sown that day. Absolutely, absolutely. So then, yeah, arranged to speak to the overseers and um, they had been thinking similar along similar lines. They'd seen this coming for a while and put it to the assembly and the assembly eventually unanimously commended me to, to um, the grace of God to give up my work and to serve the Lord in a full-time capacity. Yeah. So perhaps we could just touch on a few of the things you've mentioned. How did you find the balance between being a family man and a husband and father, and the demands and the responsibilities of full-time work, how, how easy did? Not, not easy at all, and I didn't handle it very well at all. And looking back, I probably have got quite a lot of regrets that I didn't maybe spend as much time with my family as I should have done. It's almost 20 years, it'll be 20 years next year that I've been serving the Lord full-time. My boys are aged 22 and 19, and so all they've known in their life is their dad serving the Lord. Away from home, an awful lot. If when you add it all up, it's scary how much of their life I've missed. I was able to do quite a bit of stuff at home as well, but uh, yeah, I was away from home probably too much. Um, thankfully, it has not affected them long term. But I missed an awful lot of their life. Um, and partly, I mean, I don't know why the Lord has brought this illness into my life this past couple of years, but partly it's it's been helpful and beneficial for us to get closer as a family and to almost make up for lost time together as a family. Um, so I didn't handle that very well because I do believe that my priority is to my family and to to see them grow up in the things of the Lord um, so as a father I believe I've got the spiritual responsibility for the home and the upbringing but a lot of it was was left to my wife who did a grand job but uh, it was hard at the time and I felt at the time and spent a lot of time in tears when I was away from home staying in other people's homes and they obviously didn't know anything about it but I could literally cry myself to sleep at night because I was missing family so much and it was it was yeah some, sometimes it was it was very hard and uh, I probably didn't manage it as well as I should have I should have been stronger at saying no 
and prioritising what I really 100% felt the Lord wanted me to do rather than just saying yes because I was asked. And uh, that's a difficult thing to do, I think, because people don't like to hear you say no, especially if you can't give them a specific reason. I remember, I can only remember one occasion definitely saying no to somebody and they tore a strip off me for doing it. I was invited to take a Christmas Eve service, I'll not say where, but I was invited to take a Christmas Eve service and I'd been away from home a lot. And as you know, Christmas Eve is quite special to children, you know, putting them to bed and Santa's coming in the morning and that kind of thing and they're excited and you put out cookies and put out stockings and all that kind of thing. Just the things that children enjoy and it's a special time. And so I said to this particular brother, I'm sorry, I've just spent so much time away from my children, I really feel I need to be with them, it's a special time. And sadly, the particular brother did not understand and basically said that my priority was to the Lord and Lord's work and as a preacher I should be taking the opportunity to preach the gospel to the lost. And Perhaps that's why I found it hard to say no, because I had that experience. But I think going forward now, in the will of the Lord, when opportunities come, I'll be more discerning and prayerful about what the Lord wants me to do, rather than just saying yes. And We are going to speak to Alison, Ethan or Corbin today, no. but I wonder if we were to ask them their experience of, of your role. Mm-hmm. Do you think they would have found it difficult having to make that sacrifice? Because you're, you're invited to speak, you're mm-hmm. invited to go places, but they they obviously are, are left behind and that's a natural thing with school and other responsibilities. Do you think they find it difficult? I, I think they did find it difficult. I tried to go to as many things as you, you would go to as a parent, like parents' evening at school or sports days. I made it my priority to try and be there for their birthdays. Sometimes I'd be there in the morning and be away at night or vice versa. Um, But I tried to be there. So I tried to make that priority, but there's no doubt that I missed an awful lot. And I think if you were to ask them, I don't think they'd be resentful. I don't think they would be resentful because they understand that what I was doing was of huge benefit. People were hearing the gospel and... But they, they, they certainly had to make a sacrifice in order for that to happen. I, I don't want to speak on their behalf, but um, I, I don't think they're resentful, but I, I do think they would probably say that it, it meant quite a lot and it was hard. Yeah. yeah. So with regards to the full-time work that you commended to, mm-hmm. how over the years did it manifest itself? How did it change? How did it grow? What, what sort of things... Fill your diary. Yeah, well, my priority was school visitation. I did that as much as I possibly could and tried to expand that um, in my own locality. And then other opportunities came in for me to visit schools in other places on behalf of Assemblies of Christians in various places who would invite me to come for a week and visit schools there. And then normally off the back of that, I would be involved in... um, children's campaigns, could be a holiday club, could be evening children's meetings. 
Uh, and then off the back of that, there could be adult gospel meetings as well. And then normally, in and around that, there would be Bible teaching. So if you were staying over a weekend, you'd maybe be taking the Saturday night ministry meeting, your midweek ministry meeting, possibly a conference as well on the, on the Saturday, all the meetings on the Sunday. So you were, you were working Monday to Friday in the schools during the day, in the evenings taking children's meetings, and then at the weekends you were taking Bible teaching and gospel preaching. There was never a downtime. And the, the more that that expanded, the more invites that I got to do things like that, and the more I was away from home, the less time, not only that I had with the family, but strangely enough, the less time I had with the Lord, um, personal. If you're given out all the time, there comes a point where the well runs dry, and you need to... I feel as if I was reading my Bible and studying my Bible so I could take a meeting not just so that I could enjoy the things of the Lord myself. Which again, this past two years, that has become more precious. And that's been good. So I, we as a family, and me personally, we were definitely fed as Christians, because assembly we were in, in Glasgow was a great Bible teaching assembly, and uh, you know the ministry of the Word of God was, was great. I was involved in the teaching as well. But it was also good to, to listen to others. But the vast majority, I mean 95% of the time, I was listening to myself rather than listening to others speak about the Word of God. And um, yeah, I felt as if I was studying the Scriptures for a purpose of taking a meeting and not enjoying it for myself. So that, that was difficult. Um, the work latterly, um, before COVID had got to the extent that it was, was become international as well, not just in the UK, because I would be mostly in Scotland, but all over Scotland, uh, over Northern Ireland, down into England. And then opportunity came for me to get involved in work in uh, Australia and in Canada, and then latterly in Sri Lanka as well, which was great, and I enjoyed that. It was, these opportunities really were blessed of the Lord um, and I love meeting new Christians and it was exciting to get on a plane and go abroad but as I say, sometimes on the plane I would also be really upset because I was leaving my family behind. So yeah, it became international as well as local and they're just... It felt as if something had to give, and Alison and I actually had talked about just taking time out. Because to take two weeks of a holiday wasn't two weeks of a holiday. My two weeks of a holiday was preparing for the next meetings. So we, we, we might be officially on holiday, but I didn't shut off at all and didn't stop. Every night, even on holiday, I'd be sitting with a laptop on my knee till like after midnight prepping. Laptop on one knee, pop it on the other. Yeah, kinda, kinda. So, yeah, it got to the stage that we really felt something's gonna have to have to give and then COVID happened. Then the Lord intervened in our life regarding my health. And so we literally did get time out. <laughs> it's a big thing that, you know, the, the, the Lord gave a worldwide pandemic just to calm you down. Yeah, it seems that way. But he had um, to speak to you somehow. Yeah, and 
when the pandemic struck at first, oh, I hated it. I really did hate it. I was like a cat hot bricks and really anxious. And it's almost like if, I, I guess what it's been like, if somebody's been a smoker and they stop smoking, they don't know what to do with their hands. I was a bit like that. I, I, if I woke up that day and I didn't have, because my diary was just so full, I had something to do every single day. And to wake up and to know that you cannot do anything was just so frustrating. Yeah, it almost gave me a sense of anxiety because I felt guilty that I wasn't doing stuff. And you try to do what you can because obviously you do the online things as well. But no way filled my time as much as what um, I did previous to COVID. Because you did, I was going to say, you did these things because mm -hmm. you were producing your online content for, for kids. Yeah. And I remember sharing them on, on our Assembly's Facebook page uh, and having spoken to Dad about doing something for our kids, working things, and saying, look, if Gordon's doing stuff of a far greater level than I can do, I'm sharing his content. <laughs> I don't know ventriloquism. I've not got a puppet. I've not got the, the, the same level of songs. And it, the content was was probably reaching further afield than your yeah. schoolwork ever could. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that the pandemic, a bit like the persecution of the early church, spread the gospel further and wider than it could have been without it. And that, that is true. And in God's goodness, I did get feedback that there was, over that time, people listening to the online ministry, people did come to Christ during that time. You know, I, I got messages from people in other countries that had heard the gospel for the first time or were able to share it with family and friends who weren't believers and they weren't able to share it before or their family wouldn't come to meetings but they could share that with them and it was great. The Lord was definitely working through that and able to use me through that time as well which was very nice and encouraging but still... Uh, <laughs> Um, I was still very frustrated that I couldn't physically go and uh, do the things that I had to do uh, or wanted to do. Yeah. So we're going to take a bit of a dramatic change now okay? because we're going to speak about some of your more recent health issues. Okay. So perhaps you could explain how the, the issue arose. Okay, so towards the end of COVID, the middle towards the end of COVID, Actually, even before COVID started, I'd been having symptoms and put it off because I'm a man. And because the symptoms that we're having were relatively embarrassing, and also because life was so busy and so on, and had put these symptoms off. And COVID was a great excuse as well because, oh, the doctors are so busy and they don't like people going to the GP surgery and so on. I hadn't shared my symptoms with my wife kept it to myself and thought when COVID's all over, you know, I might make a visit to the doctor. And then one day she discovered something and challenged me about it and said, yep, that's been happening for, for some time. And she forced me to phone the doctors. So phoned the doctor and spoke to them over the phone, first of all. And then they said, no, I think we need to go and come and see us. So I went and the doctor pretty much saved my life because Later on, I was told that not many GPs would have referred me at that stage or would have discovered what he discovered and gone down the route that he went down so quickly. And it was good 
that, that he did that because I'd never sit, met, met that doctor before having just moved to, to Perth it was a new GP um, and organised for me to get scans and uh, colonoscopy and that kind of thing investigation and it was discovered very very quickly that I had stage 3 bowel cancer and that the tumour was so large it actually breached the bowel wall and the reason that I was I started to go downhill quite rapidly at that point. So basically, if I hadn't gone to the doctor when I went to the doctor, it could have been a whole lot worse. Because my bowel then blocked, within the space of about two weeks of going to the doctor, my bowel blocked. I had to go into a liquid-only diet and had to get, I wouldn't say emergency surgery, but I had to get surgery fairly promptly in order to bypass where the tumour was. And so that's how it all started. And it was, it was a whirlwind. It really was, and it moved very, very quickly, the initial stages of my first surgery. And I had the option of either getting the tumour out, the cancer out, because they said some people just can't stand the thought of cancer being in you. But I was told quite clearly that if you have this operation to remove the cancer, it won't be perhaps as beneficial long term as if we leave the cancer in, and try and shrink it, downgrade it with radio and chemotherapy and then do an operation to take the cancer and maybe then a larger margin around the cancer out so that we make sure that we've got it all and also should it come back that there is potential to do a further surgery to remove it again because if we go in now and remove what we need to remove there'll be nothing left so if the cancer comes back nothing can be done. Okay. So I made the decision to leave the cancer in and to go through stages of radio and chemotherapy to reduce the size of the tumour, which was successful. The tumour was downgraded. I eventually had another operation to remove the cancer. This is over the space of a, a year. And then, because each time I had a surgery, because I had three surgeries and then various stages of radio and chemo. And every time I went through these things, they had to allow time for recovery before you could then go through the next stage. So all told, it probably took about 18 months to get through it all. Um, so it was a long time and a hard time, physically hard, because it's a horrible thing to go through, because they all almost make you more unwell to try and make you better with the things that they're doing to your body to, to beat the cancer. And in many ways it was a blessing, as I've mentioned, because I had more time with my family, it brought us closer together as a family, it definitely made us more reliant upon the Lord. It was a time of, I would say it was a time of blessing, spiritually, physically, emotionally, very, very hard. Very hard. But spiritually, a blessing. Yeah. I remember speaking to you shortly after you had got your schedule mm -hmm. and didn't say it to you, but thinking, because at, at that time it was a, a year they were looking to, to do all the different processes in and just thinking how do you even get your head around a year's worth mm. of of treatment where do you even start you know where were you at spiritually and where was your mind at when you well, sat down and heard <laughs> when I was first told it was when I was having the colonoscopy and I was told by the GP that it'd probably be about two three weeks after the colonoscopy before I would get the the results and while I was having the colonoscopy and the uh, you're sat down there uh, watching your innards on a big TV screen, big monitor, 
And uh, the man who was doing it, he sat down to type stuff at the computer and I said, when am I going to get the results? When will I know whether this is sinister or not? And he came and he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, we don't have to wait uh, any longer. Um, I'm telling you right now, this is cancer. This is serious. He says, whatever you've got in your diary for the next six months to the year, cancel it. Now, I kind of prepared myself for it being cancer, but I hadn't really prepared myself for the six month to a year thing. And when he said that, my immediate thought was, hold on, COVID's going to start to open up. You know, things are going to go back to normal. My diary is stacked full of stuff that I can be doing. And my biggest concern was that I wouldn't be able to go on with the Lord's work because I'd been so frustrated with the COVID. And now I was going to be more frustrated by cancer. So it wasn't like, oh no, I'm going to be really ill, potentially die go through horrible treatment and it, it was more like um, but I'll not be able to start in the schools again <laughs> that was the thing that uh, hit me first when he mentioned clear your diary he then called Alison in and she wasn't allowed in because of Covid so when she got the phone call to come in from the car she knew there was something wrong and, and he sat us down and of course she was in tears and I think it was at that point when he began to explain because he was very kind, but he was also very plain in explaining how serious it was. Yeah, and then your mindset changes rather than time being the issue of what, you know, this is going to be an inconvenience as to how, how are my family going to survive if I don't survive. I think that was my initial thought. I had no fear of dying whatsoever. That never entered my mind. I was perfectly ready to go um, but what concerned me most of all was leave my family behind how prepared they were for for their life ahead um, in various aspects but particularly spiritually because as I said I hadn't spent enough time with them uh, growing up and in their kind of teens into their twenties is quite a pivotal time when they kind of change from boys to men yeah that, that, that concerned me more than anything else, um, just what it, how it was going to affect them. So how difficult a conversation was that to have? That was hard. It was actually harder to tell my parents probably than it was to tell the boys, because when when you tell the boys, you sugarcoat it a little bit, and you don't. And I suppose because they're younger as well, they don't necessarily appreciate the full implications. Ethan being a little bit older, he was probably more upset. Corbin tends to keep things more internally. But yeah, it, it was a difficult conversation to have, but we just basically told him the facts. Didn't make it an emotional thing. Just, here's what it is. We're going to have to go through this. We're going to trust the Lord that he has a plan and a purpose in this. And in his goodness, we're going to get through it. And that, that was pretty much the end of the, the, the conversation. Telling my parents was, was harder because um, I guess my mum can be quite emotional. So that was, that was that, uh, difficult. My dad wasn't emotional at that time, but I had various scans and tests to go through to discover whether there was cancer elsewhere or whether it was just in the bowel. Because because it ruptured the bowel wall, there was potential, it was, they told me it was 
definitely in the lymph nodes, even though they hadn't physically discovered it, but definitely would be in the lymph nodes, has it because it's got to this stage, this potential that's elsewhere. And when I got the all clear that it wasn't in other places and told my parents that's the first time in a long time that I've ever seen my dad cry. Uh, I suppose it was just the emotion of it all coming out that, um, yeah, it was it was bad, but not as bad as it potentially could be. Yeah. So these conversations were, were hard and very emotional, but, but there's no doubt the strength that you get from should the worst come to the worst and I die, then A, I'll be with the Lord, and B, I can trust the Lord that he will take care of my family because I 100% believe that what happened to me came about because it was in the Lord's plan. It was not that this happened to me and the Lord was, oh, well, that wasn't meant to happen. Oh, no, how am I going to get him out of this one? Uh, no. I think sometimes people blame the devil for an awful lot of things. But I 100% believe that the Lord brought this disease and used it ultimately for our blessing. And I say our blessing, not just my blessing, but a blessing of us as a family. Despite the fact it was so hard to go through, there's a lot of good that has come out of it for us personally as a family that uh, we can trace it very much back to the Lord. I don't know the reason for it and I, I can't say oh, it was because of this, whatever. But the thing that gave me, right right back at the beginning, very obviously, everybody would ask the question, why? Why is this happening? But what gave me the comfort was that we were able to, we were actually able to ask or able to say, what's the reason? Why is this happening? Because it meant that there was a purpose. It wasn't happening for nothing. We, we didn't know the reason why. We just knew there was a reason why. And that's where the comfort came from, that God had a purpose in this. We don't know what it was for. We might never know, even in eternity, what it's for. But I'm content that he knows better than me. And I just have to trust that he has a purpose and that his purpose is, is right. And in the end, will be for his glory and for our blessing. Makes you think of Romans 8, all things work for good. Mm. It's not that it, all things are good, no, no. but there's always that good purpose behind it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's not not easy to see at the time when you're going through it. I would say, at the time we had a peace that it must be of the Lord, he has a purpose. But looking back now, come, come through it and looking back, it's like the footsteps in the sand thing. You can see the Lord's hand in it. Um, even the fact that we had moved to Perthshire just before it happened. Because I was told that had I been still in Glasgow, there might have been more delays in getting scans and getting treatment and so on. But the fact that we had moved here and then it happened, I get, why did that happen? It's just, again, that's not a coincidence. That's down to the Lord's intervention in these things. Um, and looking back, we can definitely see the Lord's hand in it. Was there any point during the treatment that your faith did struggle? No, I wouldn't say so. But I would say there was quite a period of time when I found it hard to pray and I found it hard to read my Bible. That wasn't because my faith in God had wavered really. That's because 
I suppose physically I felt quite low. I don't know whether you'd call it depression, but I felt quite down just because of what was happening to me physically. And I think it's because I felt low emotionally and felt down that I found it hard to know what to pray. So many people were praying for us all over the world. I mean, it was just phenomenal, the messages that we're getting and the letters that were getting written to us, and the phone calls, messages, um, the help that people were to, to Alison and people that had been through similar circumstances were to us, how, how helpful they were. Different people that we were put in touch with that had been through similar circumstances who were believers and just how helpful that was. And it was great that other people were praying, but I found it very difficult to pray for myself. You always feel a little bit selfish praying for myself. It's easy to pray for someone else who's sick. And so it was difficult for me to know what to... I, I could easily uh, I'd pray for my family and for Alison and how it was affecting her and how it was affecting the boys. And I could commend them to the Lord and ask help for them, but I didn't know what to pray for for myself. And so there was a time through it and wh whether it's medication that you're on or what it is that affects you but there was a point when I felt really low emotionally and it was during that time that I just found it hard to to pray to know what to pray for and I found it hard to, to read my bible I don't know how long that lasted maybe a month I don't know but no my, my, my faith in God didn't waver I just guess found it just emotionally hard to keep my spirituality up and to kind of just have the wherewithal to get my Bible out and sit it down and, and to read it. I just felt very tired and couldn't get my um, head in the right space to do it. Um, and I, I, just just being honest, I wouldn't say that it was my faith that wavered. It's just that I felt emotionally down, and that's what affected um, my times with the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. So you've reached the end of the, the the treatment plan, and now it's a case of rebuilding yourself in many ways and mm. and looking ahead. What what do you hope to be able to do? What's the expectation moving forward in the Lord's work? Well, I definitely have some physical limitations and I probably won't be able to do everything I did before, which is probably a good thing because, as I mentioned, life was getting too crazy and too busy. Possibly because of those physical limitations, I wouldn't be able to um, go into the jungle in Sri Lanka and preach the gospel and that, that, that kind of thing. So it probably will have to be more local or certainly more convenient <laughs> more cultured more cultured uh, that would probably be uh, going forward but to be honest I don't know what the Lord has for us to do I'm starting to go back into the, the schools locally here which is great and have an opportunity to do that and I've been taking quite a bit of meetings locally in our own assembly I, I don't like organising things or doing things myself unless I know it's absolutely what the Lord wants me to do. So I'm not going to organise a series of meetings here, there or whatever unless I feel that's what the Lord wants me to do. So historically what I have done is I've just kind of waited for people to ask me and then go and 
serve wherever I'm, I'm asked to go. Um, so I'm trying my very best at this stage not to manipulate things and try and organise things and I, I'm just waiting, I suppose, what I'm doing just now, just see what the Lord has for us to do and take the opportunities where they come, whether the work that I'm involved in it continues to be primarily children or maybe I kind of veer a little bit away from that. The reason I say that is because working with children and taking children's meetings is very physically demanding. It was the way you did it. Yeah, it well, was. <laughs> that was true. And people have said to me, can you not just like tailor it back a little bit or tone it down a bit? And I find it very difficult to do it. There's only one way I know how to do it. And also when it comes to preaching, there's only one way I kind of know how to preach. And that's kind of quite physically or um, enthusiastically, I suppose, is, is the way to do it. So yeah, perhaps I will have to tone that side of things back. And when I am maybe taking a series of, of children's meetings where I'm doing schools, where I maybe combined a lot of things at the one time, so I did schools during the day and children's meetings at night, I possibly will just have to do one or the other. And it may be that I, I start to focus a little bit more on preaching the gospel and teaching the word of God and do children's work as well, but maybe not, I mean, the lion's share of what I did before was like 90% uh, of children's work. But as I say, very physically demanding, and uh, I don't necessarily have the physical capability to do that on a regular, ongoing basis, because I would do it relentlessly week after week after week after week, and I, I know right now that I would not be able to do that going forward. So I'll have to learn just to manage my time better. But at the moment, I do have a little bit more free time, so I'm using that primarily for preparation for what I know is, I do have things in the diary coming ahead uh, into next year, so I'm trying to prepare for that. And I've got meetings coming up at Christmas time, I'm trying to prepare for that. And particularly when it comes to children's work, I don't think people really understand the preparation that goes into, say, an hour's meeting to prepare an object lesson or to build an object lesson, to think about how you're going to present a message or how you're going to get the children to memorise a memory verse and how you're, what you're going to bring out of that, is way more involved than preparing for a gospel meeting or a Bible teaching meeting, way more. I mean, for an hour's children's meeting, it could take me a week to prepare for one hour's children's meeting. I know that sounds crazy, but when you're talking about literally sourcing and building uh, object lessons and practicing how you're going to present it and th there's a lot involved in the preparation of a school visit or a children's meeting and so that's what I'm doing just now in the time that I've got is, is doing a lot of that prep work which is good um, because when you're in the full flow of actually involved in doing the outreach then you have very little time to do that background work I'm in a, a strange situation at the moment because I think other people aren't necessarily sure about where I am physically. So there's some people starting to contact me by email or message, phone call, to sort of tentatively find out, are you in a position to take on doing a meeting or meetings? And, and I, I suppose word will start to, to get out, but I think people are quite cautious at the moment, which is nice and they're not expecting too much of me and hopefully it will be a gradual process of getting back into things.
and because it's a gradual process of getting back into things, I'll be able to control a little bit more about what I do and the time scale of when it happens and how it happens rather than things just being one thing after another, perhaps being a little bit of space in between activities. So that's kind of where I am at the moment. So there's no temptation to go back to the world of banking for an easy life? You know, du during my cancer, it did cross my mind that I may have to go back into doing secular work again. And, and I had a piece about that, no, no problem. And I, I t literally told the Lord, I prayed this prayer, and I told the Lord, if you want me to stack shelves in Tesco's, I will do it. That's it. You know, if I can't physically do what I used to do before, and I'd almost resign myself to the fact that I wouldn't be able to do it, because when I was going through it all I was going through, I couldn't envisage being able to get back to going to visit schools or take children's meetings or stand on a platform and take a conference. I couldn't envisage ever having the capability to do that again. And now that I am able to do that again, I'm just blown away by it and so thankful I can do it. But I, I was fully prepared to do whatever the Lord had for me to do because I'm 100% convinced that whatever you're involved in, whether you are stacking the shelves in Tesco's, working in a bank, or serving the Lord as what we term in a full-time capacity, you're the Lord's servant. And the Lord will work through you wherever you are. And so I, I was content with that because I knew if I was doing a secular job of some description, I'd still be serving the Lord just in that way. And I would just have to be content with that because I'd had 19 years of non-stop, full-time um, gospel work, which, which I loved. And the Lord was gracious enough to use me in that time. And I was content to know that I'd done that because when I went out full-time, one of the things that was in my mind at the time when I was commended, I think I was 28, I was commended to full-time work. One of the things that went through my mind at the time was I want to give the Lord the best years of my life and not kind of then retire and then, I know some people do that, they retire and then they kind of say, well I'm going to use my retired life for the Lord, and that's great. But I had in my mind that I want to use the years when I'm physically strong and able for the Lord, and I believe I did that. And maybe I'm not quite as physically strong and able now, but if the Lord is still able to use me in some capacity, that'll be wonderful. Uh, and I'll just wait and see just exactly what that entails, because I don't, no, but I'm content to wait and see and just move as the Lord leads to do what he wants me to do. It would be interesting to see what demand there was to hear a report of your work in Tesco's, mm. <laughs> whether it would be yeah. well attended. I don't, I don't think I'd be invited to Australia to, um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to work in a Tesco's or whatever they have over, over there. Yeah, it's an entirely different kettle of fish. But I don't believe the Lord honours a full-time worker any more than he honours somebody who works and serves him in employment or serves him in a family. Because service for the Lord is service for the Lord. If you give a cup of water in his name, you'll not lose your reward. Um, we view it differently and see people who are preaching as the Lord's servants. But... Um, yeah, a mother who's bringing up their family to know the Lord, the Lord's servant. 
someone who's working in the world, literally in enemy territory, surrounded by unbelievers every day and having to hear bad language and having to hear uh, Christians put down and having to deal in that environment every day and that's hard. And if you honour the Lord in that, again, I fully believe the Lord will honour you. That brings us to our final question now. Mm. Was there or are there any Bible verses that have been particularly helpful to you at any stage in your Christian walk? So the, the one verse that I think has helped me through the time of the illness was given to me by someone messaged it to me and it stuck with me. And it's the verse that says that the Lord is the shadow on your right hand. And uh, I don't really know where it is, is found right now. I think it might be Psalms, not entirely sure. But it's been a great verse and uh, much help to me. That stuck with me through all this illness side of things. Because to, to, to cast a shadow on your right hand, it's got to be pretty close <laughs> to do that. But I suppose a number of thoughts came to my mind when thinking of that verse uh, over the months. One, he's above me because a shadow has to be above you, you know, and he, he provides shade, he provides shelter. Um, he's right by, but the basic thought is that he's right by your side. Every step of the way. And there's a number of times that I have been in the hospital and it's been really horrific. Some of the stuff that I've had to go through and looked at my, my hand and seen a shadow. <laughs> it might just be the hospital curtain around your bed <laughs> casting the shadow. The doctor looming over yeah. here. But it, it, it definitely made me think of that scripture, that he is the shadow on our right hand. To me, it's just the, the wonderful thought of the knowing that every step of the way is right by your side. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning, Gordon. It's okay. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to Testimony Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please consider leaving a review and sharing it on social media with friends. Thank you.